Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for a chance to come together and worship you. We thank you for a chance to come together and open your word and talk about what is God. A huge question that we will never adequately answer. But Lord, we thank you for the truth that we have, that you have given us. That we do have uh, what we need to know for salvation and to live a life that glorifies you. And Lord, we, we just praise you for being infinite and unchangeable and the God that we will worship and learn about forever and ever and ever without ever exhausting who you are. And uh, we, we just pray that you would open our eyes to just one more facet of uh, your majesty today. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So I was going to read this a couple weeks ago, but then I was like, mixed company. It's kind of gross. Um, yeah, but in light of our guest speaker this morning and just how well this segues between what God's word is and the nature of God's word and who God is and how the two relate to each other, I thought I would read it anyway. And, you know, everybody's a grown up. Um, I mean, not everybody. We're like one row in the back. Not. So. The title is, The Pastrix Goes Pornstrix. Uh, and it's about a woman named Nadia Boltzweber. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's rather famous lately. Um, and she wrote a book called Pastrix, which is uh, about her life as an evangelical Lutheran uh, minister. Uh, and it's full of F-words and stuff. So that's something. Um, and, she, you know, she's torn all the arms off of her clerical shirt so you can see your guns and her uh, tattoos, um, which uh, I, I kind of think all of that is sort of cool. Not the F-bombs, but that. But uh, yeah, she's kind of gone completely haywire, and it's because she's continually trying to stay super on the edge. And the reason, you'll see very quickly why I think this is um, relevant to our, our discussion lately. Um, so she was being interviewed by Out in Jersey, and they asked her... Well, I'm sure she's not from Jersey. Oh, I don't know. I, mean, I, I, think, she, I think she's not, actually. Um, the, the newspaper asked her about, quote, about the uh, notion that things are very clear in the Bible. What about, quote, well, the Bible's very clear about blank. To which she said, the Bible's not clear about expletive deleted. The Bible is a library. Hey, we've heard that before. Let's say you have this huge library in your house and ask, what's the clear message my library has to say about gender? The poetry is going to say one thing. History says another. Prose says something. Science fiction says something else. It's like saying, oh no, the library is clear. So what happens is now the notion of the scriptures as a library rather than something authoritative becomes an excuse to just say the, li the, the library can't speak authoritatively on anything because that's not the nature of a library. A library gives you a broad uh, kind of array of perspectives, not one cohesive perspective. You just don't even understand libraries if you're, if you're speaking in these terms. Um, and then I think this really is the natural end. There's no kids down here. Okay. Let's talk about pleasure. She says, pleasure is a complicated thing for human beings because it's easy to fall off one or the other side of the spectrum. 
Either we've overindulged to obesity or we're eating elimination diets where four foods are pure enough to consume. We restrict our or indulge in ways that are equally harmful. A chapter I rewrote many times in my new book was about pleasure in pornography. I refuse to pick the low-hanging moral outrage fruit of liberals and conservatives about porn. Now there are issues of justice and exploitation within the industry, no question, but it doesn't mean consumption of pornography should be shamed. There is ethically sourced porn. Um, there's all sorts of more, but it gets really blue. Um, Oh my gosh, F word, F word, F word. I can't believe I printed this on the church printer. <laughs> Long story short, she is so upset about the notion of kind of chastity and um, sexual purity in the church and the notion of uh, purity rings. I don't know if you're familiar with these, but it's a young lady would be uh, wearing a ring that indicates she's spoken for by Jesus until she's married to, to uh, indicate to uh, dirtbag gentlemen, don't, don't even bother to try if that's what you're after. Um, and she's so upset about that that she is making a large, uh, I guess it's a sculpture of the female anatomy out of people's uh, discarded purity rings, and there is a call for people to send them to her so she can do that. Minister, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. So, uh, I really, really believe what gets you from regular pastor, albeit with, you know, lots of tattoos, and, I mean, the name of the church she started was called the House of All Sinners and Saints. So cool. The whole thing was rather solid at the beginning. She was just out there. That wasn't the problem. The problem was the Bible is just a library. Um, and that gets us, Rob Bell, same thing. I used to go listen to that guy preach every Saturday night. Still sometimes think about the convicting things he said and ways he helped me understand the, the, the text. Went from scripture is authoritative to, eh, maybe I decide what it means. And you go very quickly from I've decided what scripture is to I decide what God is. And that's, I think, why we have the question first of what do the scriptures principally teach? And, and the, the answer tells us they teach us about God, what he has commanded of us, what he's done for us, what we should believe about him. And then we ask, okay, what is God? Because the scriptures are the foundation of what we know about God. If they're not, then what's going to happen is we're going to make him in our own image. And that gets pretty ugly pretty quick, case in point. Um, Thoughts on that? Nobody has sent in their purity ring, have you? All right. Man, it got quiet in here. I hear a pin drop during Noah's thing. I, for the record, I didn't say the F word. I said F word. Okay. <laughs> Everyone's shocked anyway. <laughs> All right. So... We talked last week about God's nature. We talked about how God um, is often identified in these threes and that that reflects for us and reminds us of the Trinity, which we will get to in the next couple questions. Uh, we talked about the three omnis briefly. We'll get to them in due course as well, though. Omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. Omnipresent. Omnipresent, meaning everywhere. He's always there. Omniscient, meaning? All-knowing. All -knowing. 
So that's, that's a way that we talk about God in a triad. Uh, another is those anarthrous statements of St. John. We talked briefly about last week as well. God is spirit. God is love, love and God is, light. God is light. Yeah, Roger, you weren't even here. You know him. Good job. Um, and then we also began talking about these three incommunicable attributes of God. And we say they're incommunicable because they can belong to God. But don't worry, you're not going to catch them because they are only something that a truly divine being could have. Yeah. Uh, who is the spirit, love, and light guy? St. John? So yeah, in, in John, the, the, the gospel of John, oh. God is spirit. And then in his epistles, God is love and God is light. So kind of throughout his writings. And then in uh, Revelation, God is terrifying. Okay, so we started talking about infinite. We watched... The Powers of Ten video, which was cool. Um, and then when I put it on the internet, I, I read a little old-timey illustration that you guys didn't get to hear for the people at home. Um, so let's talk more about these uh, incommunicables. And, and again, I want to emphasize, when you're talking about an infinite God, writing down a list of 50 cent words is not really going to get you all the way there. It's like you're opening doors and able to see another piece. You know, like say, say you're in a room that's, that's round and you're just opening a door and you can see part of the landscape and then opening another and seeing another part of it. You're not going to exhaust who God is, but we're able as we just meditate on these things and especially as we look to scripture to just understand a bit more of his nature and a little bit deeper of who he is. And he wants us to. He's a self-disclosing God. Uh, he wants us to think about him and acknowledge that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, but still strive to think his thoughts after him and live our lives by his ways. Uh, delight in your will and walk in your ways, as we say, to the glory of your holy name in our communion prayer. Teaching is, doctrine is important. When I hear people, uh, what did I see on Twitter not that long ago. Jesus didn't die for your doctrine. Um, that's a doctrinal statement. It's just a horrible one. Uh, doctrine, teaching, theology, these things are very, very central to the life of a Christian because our lives are based on who God is. And who God is, how you understand that, that's your theology. So you have a theology whether you recognize it or not. So it's important, even though it can sometimes seem dry, we start writing out all these long words. Um, it's, it's worthwhile as a pursuit. We talked about how God's um, attributes are his perfections and, and God's attributes are him. So you can't talk about something that's sort of God, right? He, I don't know, he sort of likes um, Wes Anderson movies, but that's not central to who he is. No, all of his attributes, he embodies them perfectly. And so you can say God is love. Um, and you can, when you say, when you talk about God's holiness, this isn't just something he dabbles in the way I occasionally dabble in, uh, repairing old books. Nope. This is who he is. He is love. He is justice. He is, I mean, all of his perfections. These are how we learn about God. Um, let's talk about infinite. Then we started by talking about how it's impossible to fathom. And we should mention then that, in a sense, infinite is usually thought of as relating to space 
right? And I don't mean going out to outer space. I mean spatially. Uh, and so we might associate infinite with omnipresent. If we wanted to pin omnipresent, omniscient, and, and uh, omnipotent somewhere. That's not the entirety of what infinite means, but it's certainly near the, near the center. So let's look up a couple of uh, passages. First off, someone look up Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24. And someone else look up Job 11, 7 through 9, please. Yeah, verses 23 and 24. Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? So certainly omnipresence and infinite, infinity being talked about here. <clears throat> that God is calling his people on the same thing that he calls... Uh, Adam and Eve on, and then later the same thing that he calls their son Cain on, which is thinking that I'm like you and you can hide from me. Oh, behind this tree, then he won't see us. <laughs> or, you know, telling, telling God, oh, I, I haven't seen him. I'm not my brother's keeper. He's probably around here somewhere. I keep looking. And God's like, no, I see everything. His blood cries out to me from the ground. I, I am everywhere. And here he says, am I a God near at hand, right there, but not far off? Am I, can you actually tie me down to a place? Or do I fill heaven and fill earth? And of course, the answer, if you're keeping track, is B. He fills heaven and earth. Um, but in that, we also have a little reference to something we would call um, the transcendence. And imminence of God. Before we're done with this question, I'm going to hand out uh, a grid here of errors about God. And uh, one of them is going to be an error popularized by Kant. And it, it, it tends to think of God as just transcendent. Way, 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 way up high. Separated from us. And probably not all that concerned with the details of my life rather than a God that's imminent, who's here with me. You could also see people who would fall into the opposite error. Oh yeah, God is here with me so much so that he's just here with me. He's my, he's my pet God, right? He cares about me more than anybody else. Um, and you, know, he's, he, he, you forget about the fact that this is the God who spoke a billion galaxies into existence like, it was, like he was ordering a pizza. So, yeah. Is that kind of like when somebody says that God told them something was okay that in the scriptures is not? There you go. That's, yeah, way over. You're taking God's imminence and turning it into license, right? Well, God's with me, and you can't tell me what he said to me or not. That's a very personal thing. Okay, but God is also mighty, sovereign, and holy, and he tells us in his word what his character is, and he's not going to violate that for you because of your special relationship with him. Yeah, I hear that a lot. God released me from this or that commandment. No, he didn't. Um, so they're both equally God. 
a transcendent God who is a God of far off, looking over everything and everyone, and an imminent God, intimately here, present with all of us, when you are weeping and crying and hopeless because life has just knocked you over, God's there with you. He's not way far off looking down like, huh, I wonder what happened to him. I don't care. So there's, there's both, and they're both important. It's a, a paradox. It's a tension that we want to embrace, not try to alleviate by going to one side or the other. What about that horrible 90s crooner song, What If God Were One of Us? Which error does that fall into? Everyone here is either too old or too young to remember that, except you and me. Just a stranger well, on the bus. Generation. <laughs> there, are, there are people. They're not a church. <laughs> it, that, that's, seeing God is so transcendent. Uh, the question is, what if God was one of us? Just a stranger on the bus. Um, and so it's like God is so high. Nobody has a real connection with him. He's this cold, distant. Where does that come from? Upbringing, probably. Going to a church where you walk in and it's like, shh, everyone, be quiet. We don't want even God to remember we're here. We just want to get our like good vibes and leave. Um, okay, God's this scary, transcendent monster. Both of these things are very much explored in Scripture, taught in Scripture, worth embracing. And if you tend toward one or the other, we all probably do. It's good to do reading and prayer leaning you back in the other direction, I think. Reminding you, uh, if you think of God as distant and cold, that he is, I mean, I don't know how he can show us any more clearly that he's not than by being like, you know what, I'll become a baby. You change my diaper and hold me and rock me to sleep and then I'll die for you. Um, so yeah, they're, they're both very much uh, important and they're both part of God's being infinite. Roger. Um, I was wondering, which, which extreme did the Gnostics go to, being a transcendent or imminent? Well, their error was not really in this category because they believed in essentially a demiurge uh, that created everything, essentially a crazy, insane angel, and then a God that was loving. Um, they basically, it's kind of like how there were a bunch of people expecting two messiahs. Because you can't have one that's victorious and one that suffers and dies. So there must be two. The Gnostics were kind of like, well, you can't have a fully transcendent being that is responsible for all this chaos and one that loves us. So there's two. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a different category that leads to their error. Uh, what about... Job 11, 7 through 9. This is uh, the words of Zophar. you got to be careful in Job. We're going to read another text from Job this week, too. You may wind up reading one of his friends who's like a complete bonehead and is pushing a, a bad agenda. And then you don't want to read that out of context and go, oh, this is my life verse and I'm going to live by this because it might be nonsense. It's so a context, context, context. This, this is Zophar, and at this point, Zophar is so good. Uh, I, it took me an extra like 20 minutes last night before I went to bed. Let's hear it. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? To measure it is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If it, if he passes, oh, was I supposed to stop? I think that's good. You're in a roll, Mimi. Yeah. 
bonus episode. Um, Job, by the way, seems to be a great model for recognizing God's transcendence and his imminence. Um, he's seeing all of this stuff falling apart around him, and he says, you know, essentially God's sovereign, God's good, God's in control. And he says things like, you know, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I'm going to lay eyes on him. There's this personal relationship. Even while his friends are like, no, 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 God's basically he's up there keeping track. You're in a negative point value and he stomped on you. Um, but at the end, when God finally rebukes him because he finally uh, kind of loses it, demands a face to face and an answer, God reminds him of his transcendence, right? Surely you were there when I opened up the storehouses of, you know, so there's always something missing when our picture of God is, you know, skewed and it seems like he's not loving or it seems like he's not in control. And so perhaps just remembering this transcendent, imminent, and saying, what am I missing right now? And reading some texts that remind you of that and thinking on them and praying on them might be helpful. Uh, And that, that passage, I mean, God's higher than you could ever go into the heavens. He's deeper than you could ever go into the earth. You can't you can't even fathom him. He is infinite. That's good news. It sometimes seems like bad news to people. God is infinite. God is everywhere. Oh no. He's like Google. He's a Alexa. He's listening even when you don't say that word. But wouldn't that be great if you just when you said Lord, then he showed up and, and took notice? Uh, that's the wake word. I'm kidding. That'd be no good. But uh, that's that's uh, for us a great comfort that God is infinite uh, and he being spirit is everywhere. Uh, incommunicable attribute number two, God is eternal. And if infinite is associated with space, eternal is obviously associated with And you go, wait a minute, that you say that's incommunicable, but I'm going to have eternal life. So I've caught the incommunicable attribute from God. One of you, who you're shaking your head no, but you're raising your hand. Kim, what's up? Um, God has always been, and we haven't. So we're not really eternal. Right, yeah. So, and, and ultimately, words do change meaning, and so different translations are translating things differently. But when you open your King James Bible, as a general rule, you're going to find that eternal is reserved for God. Right, you're, you're mouthing words back there, Lisa. What's the word for us? Everlasting indicates something that has no end, right? Beginning here, uh, that's when I was born, Bay Medical Center, same place as Madonna. And then uh, <laughs> off we go. And whether I'm uh, saved or not, my understanding is people who are created are everlasting. I see the forward direction uh, not, not ever coming to an end, but there's nothing that can ever make me eternal uh, because eternal indicates something else. Psalm 92, I'll just read for you. Actually, no, everyone open to it because we're going to look at three verses in it. Um, Psalm 90. It's right after uh, Psalm 89. Oh, Psalm 92. Yeah, 90 colon 2. Sorry, I'm too amped up on whatever. This mean bean. Mean bean. Mean bean. 
never gets old. Zephaniah 1, listen, stop sinning because judgment is inevitable. Somebody read me verse 2, please. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Okay, now you see there, from me'olam, from everlasting, avolam, to everlasting. Both directions. That's eternal. God is eternal. We have everlasting life. Now, when you're reading your NIV and it says this age and the age to come, eternal life, don't get all like, oh, well, that's wrong. Because within the semantic domain of the word eternal in the English language is something that goes on forever. But as a theological category, we want to make that distinction. Eternal versus everlasting, only God as an incommunicable attribute is eternal. God has always been He's from everlasting and always will be. He's to everlasting as well. Uh, somebody read uh, verse 4 as well, please. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And then, of course, makes us think of Second Peter 3.8. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Uh, the idea of... God's relationship to time being incredibly different from ours. Uh, and despite some 90s apocalyptic movies tried to turn this into like conversion tables or certain dispensational uh, end times maps and stuff trying to turn this into uh, converting the number of days in Revelation to a thousand years and all these things, this isn't, this isn't a conversion table. This is simply saying a thousand years, that's nothing. That's like, you're like, what did I do yesterday? I went to Wendy's twice. That's weird. But for God, time is, it's not confining him. He's outside of time. And that's why he can be eternal while we cannot. So I'm going to flip up to Psalm 102, uh, verse 25 to 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. All right, now we're in this nebulous segue time between the notion of God's being eternal and unchangeable. But you can't really discuss one without the other one poking its head in. Um, that God is never wearing down. Everything we know, including us, is wearing down. God is not. He's eternal. He's, you know, we, th we think the great enemy is time. Not to God. Time's just something he invented, he created, he stepped into, he stepped out of, and he is eternal. Um, so when we talk about, yeah, to get to, to Roger's point, when we talk about God being, in fact, I, I think a great uh, translation of this, this Hebrew, um, which we won't want to say is everlasting, olam, olam, is perpetuity. That's really kind of the, the idea behind it. You know, it sounds like contract language, like I sign over the rights to, you know, mine whatever, zinc, phosphorus or something, in perpetuity. Um, 
Is that something you mind? I don't know. Uh, but the idea of just nothing's going to stop it. You know, when, when you slide something across the ice and it's an object in motion, it tends to stay in motion unless acted on by an outside force. The outside force of like friction, even on ice, will eventually cause it to stop. Olam is like, no, it just keeps on sliding, just keeps on going. It's had that divine push. So from perpetuity to perpetuity, that's God. From whenever you came into being to perpetuity, that's our hope. Uh, everlasting life. A very important distinction. And I think, um, first of all, when Jesus uses the, the phrase, I am, he he kind of shows himself also to be outside of the notion of tense. And it's funny because you've got, you know, the weird relationship between the Hebrew language and tense. There's not, there's not strict tenses, past, present, and future. But in the Greek, there are good wooden tenses, aorist, present, continuous, uh, future, imperfect. And Jesus says, before Abraham was... I am. And you read that and go, okay, he missed some grammar school. You know, maybe he was, that's when he went to the temple when he was 12 or something. Uh, and then you say, no, 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 Jesus doesn't make mistakes. What is he doing here? Well, maybe he's just claiming that divine name of God. And so he said it in this wacky way so that people would go, I, I, oh, I see. You're saying, like God said to Moses, tell the people, I am sent you, that you're that God. Yeah, he's doing that. But he's also saying, I'm outside of time. Before Abraham was, he couldn't say, I was. He is. That's what God's revealed name even is a play on. So you have um, the, the name he gives Moses is kind of a put off on one end, right? I will be what I will be. Eh, yeah, eh, eh, yeah. It's, and Popeye did not invent that. Yanked it from God. I am what I am. Um, or I will be what I will be is actually a, a better translation. But at the same time, when he does reveal his name, the name is, anyone know God's name? I am. Yahweh. Yeah, it comes from the Hebrew verb to be. So his essence, and remember in the Bible, names are so important. They often tell you core attributes of the person who owns that name. So if your name is Sickly and your brother's name is Pining, you guys aren't making it through chapter one of this book. Sorry. Um, if you're... <laughs> you're basically, in the Bible, your name represents your identity. And that's to be, not to be taken lightly, especially when God says, here's my revealed name, and it is built off of a verbal root to be. And I've already told a guy, just tell him, I am has sent you. So God is the God whose core attribute is that he is. And you go, well, that's strange. Everybody is. Can we all take? No, no, no. Because that's not your core attribute. There was a time when Steve wasn't. Right? Also, I'm guessing Steve's going to die at some point. And while we look forward to the general resurrection and the life of the world to come, we also know that we all like grass will die and God remains. God is. He's the God who is. Also, compared to all the other gods who ain't, right? That's also an important distinction. All these Canaanite gods, all the gods that people worship in America today, whether it's 
a, a false god in a temple or whether it's their own press or their own car or whatever, where those things are all, they're, they're not at their core something that is. They're, we're propping them up and then worshiping them. Like the guy in Isaiah who chops down a tree, cuts it in half, cooks his food with half of it, chisels a little idol with the other half and thanks half the tree. It's, it's foolishness to worship any God but the God who is. And that is the core of God's being. And when we say God is spirit, maybe we have to come up here and before we even write spirit on our diagram, just write is. Don't miss that. That's, that's where God's uh, character finds its center in, in being. And he's not just one place. He's everywhere. And he's not just in one time period. He's always. It's, it's mind-numbing to try and think about it too deeply. But he is from perpetuity to perpetuity. Uh, is anyone quick at finding 1 Timothy 1.17? Roger, you're not even trying. Do you have it memorized? Did you not bring a Bible? <laughs> Open the thing, man. Sword's drawn. Go, go, go. Oh, 117. I bet Roger can get there before you. I got it. All right. Let's hear. Uh, to the King of the Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a doxology. To the King of Ages. It's not a title you even, I can't even think of a, like a worship song or hymn that uses that title. Um, and that's interesting. They, the thing that they translate forever and ever, they say in Greek, is to the ages of ages. Mm-hmm. They should have done it that way. It would have fit nicely with King of Ages. Ionios. Yeah, right? So there's some kind of uh, inclusio to this verse. The King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God... Be honor and glory to the ages of ages. Amen. I can't improve on that. Anybody have something to say on that? That's All right, incommunicable number three, unchangeable. And again, I mentioned last week, sometimes philosophers will use the word, uh, or theologians, incorrigible, which is a word that some teachers use to describe me at uh, parent-teacher conferences means can't be changed, and usually they mean he's a bad kid and he won't change. <laughs> so instead we say immutable, which also sounds like a bad kid who won't shut up. You can't be muted. But uh, immutable means obviously unchangeable. Um, and basically the notion that God is eternal and the notion that God is unchangeable or immutable are enmeshed with each other so much that I wonder if they should be in the same rectangle there. Um, we already saw that when we were looking at Psalm 90, uh, where in talking about God's eternality, you accidentally wind up talking about his uh, unchangeability. And we mentioned how you know Jesus had set aside uh, some of his glory. It set aside his glory in coming to take on flesh and a human nature and, and dwell amongst us. He became changeable, although his character didn't change. He took on a human body and a human nature, which changed in that they grew in the normal way. But God's character never changed and never can. Some texts we want to look at. Malachi 3.6. 
in Job 35, 6 to 8. This time, Elihu is talking to us, and, and he's really reliable. Malachi what? 3-6. six. Job 35, 6 to 8. Sword, sword at um, Malachi 2-6. You've never really played, have you, Roger? No. All right, what you do is you just stand up and just start reading it with confidence. He's like, I'm not standing up. I'm comfortable. Got my coffee. Let's hear it. Let's see, Malachi 3, 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Sounds like God's unchangeability is good news for the descendants of Jacob. Which, by the way, we will see is us when we get to uh, the nature of the church. So God doesn't change. Uh, how about the Job passage? 35, 6 to 8. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. Hmm. That's a lot. It's a lot there, particularly the beginning. You, you sin against him. What did you do to him? Is, is he now different? If, you, if you're very righteous, what have you done for him? God is unchangeable and perfect. And so when we, the Westminster Divines asked this question, uh, did creation make any change in God? Answer, it made a change in the creature from nothing to being but none in God, because his will and power to create were the same from eternity. So in creating us, God doesn't, and in praying to God, we don't change him. Do we have time to look at, yeah, fun little, uh, uh, what do you call, case study. Exodus 32, 11 to 14. There are times that even though in Malachi we read that God does not change, it sort of seems like God changes, at least changes his mind, uh, and that we did have a great impact on him. Like God, you know, he, he's giving the Lifetime Achievement Award acceptance speech, and he's like, ah, you know, the people who had the most impact on me were, and he starts listing off people. But let's, let's look a little deeper. Somebody read for us Exodus 32, 11 to 14. But Moses tried to pacify the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your own people whom you brought from the land of Egypt with such great power and such a strong hand? Why let the Egyptians say their God rescued them with the evil intention of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face of the earth? Turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. Remember your servants. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You bound yourself with them with an oath to them, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven, and I will give them all of this land that I have promised to your descendants, and they will possess it forever. Verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. Or the Lord relented, or the Lord repented. Same word for when a person repents. Relented, repented, and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Should have had you begin a, a verse or two earlier so we could hear what Moses was referencing. God says, I've seen these people. They're stiff-necked. 
Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, so that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. And Moses goes to bat for the people, and God says, Ah, you convinced me. And he relented of the evil. And when you recognize when you read evil in, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word there generally also means calamity, destruction, uh, just bad stuff, not necessarily moral evil present in the agent doing it. So what do we do with that? If God is unchangeable, and it seems like Moses, if he had said to himself, well, God wants to burn in his anger and then destroy the people and make a great people out of me, and he's unchangeable, so what can I do? He approaches it thinking maybe God is, at least his mind is changeable. Let's talk. This happens way more than once. Joshua tries it a little later, and he's not as good at it. But I said something to my son uh, last week, I think it was. It was a story of Jesus with the uh, Gentile woman, and she, uh, you know, gives the speech like she did, like, please give me the scraps. Mm-hmm. What I offer isn't for the non-Jews. And she's like, please give me the scraps. And what I told him was that, you know, Jesus at first turned her away, and then he relented. Mm-hmm. And I said, I told him, he knew what he was doing the whole time. It was, it was like a device to teach others. He knew he was going to relent in the beginning. It, this was to show everybody else. So you're talking about the Syrophoenician woman who says, my daughter is very sick, or is it her servant? It's her daughter. It's her daughter, right? It's very sick. And Jesus says, uh, I came only for the lost sheep of Israel. It's not good to give the dogs the food that was for the children. And she says, even the dogs get the scraps that are left over, and that's all I want. Uh, and yeah, I think, I think you're, that's a troubling text on its surface. Like Jesus seems a little bit racist, very dismissive, kind of mean. But then he says, I, you know, this is great faith. I haven't seen, you know, the likes of it in Israel. And so it was a test in a sense. And it's also a teaching device, like you say. It's, it's, he's, not, he's not changed. He's not, well, let's see what kind of, no, God is always revealing more of himself to us through every interaction. And he's always, Jesus is always breaking people with the law. So like we were just starting uh, in our men's group last week, we were, or last time we were looking at uh, poor in spirit. We're, we're looking at the Beatitudes. Poor in spirit means you don't think you're owed anything by God. And Jesus is always showing people, giving people that crossroads of come the route of, oh, no, 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 I got this coming. I've been a good boy. Or no, I, I beat my breast and don't look up to heaven and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. It doesn't change God. So, so Jesus walked away the same. That woman walked away from that encounter having been shown grace and having been her, her poverty of spirit reinforced, but her value also now reinforced by Jesus and her faith affirmed. And I think Peter was there and was going to push her away. So he also showed his apostles. Mm-hmm. Right. Treat the Gentiles, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, Peter's there always ready to push everybody away. You're lucky if you keep both your ears. Yeah. What's interesting about that is that that's obviously a teaching moment where he's teaching other people because there were other people around because there were crowds. Mm-hmm. But here it's just Moses. Yeah, but you and I also read right. about it and everyone right. finds well, out about it after the fact. Okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> that it would then change him. And, you know, but it seems like if other people had seen that, like you wonder why God limited it to Moses at that mm-hmm. time, because the other people there who He was going to destroy uh-huh. didn't. 
Joshua is probably waiting in the wings there too. Uh, okay. But yeah, so I don't know. Penny. Do you think that God knew in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve were going to sin? Oh, I know he did, yeah. yeah that he, but he, he, he allowed them to leave the Garden. He was, do you know why he didn't relent or he couldn't? Well, at no time when God relents does he violate his holiness. So... There, there's never a, a change in his character from a God who cannot have sin in his presence to one who's like, yeah, you know what? Never mind. I want to be the cool dad. Um, I'd rather have you sin here at home than out doing it with someone else. So, so there's no option for a holy God to say, eh, you just stay in my paradise, in my presence, and I keep coming down in the cool of the evening and walking with you. And we pretend this whole you rebelling never happened. Uh, and we don't know, we can't say why God... But he didn't stop it. I mean, he must have known. Well, God's sovereign, so whatever he does is for his glory. Yeah. I don't know, I, I wouldn't venture a guess as to why God... I mean, there, are, are, are there stories of humanity that could have happened that don't involve the fall? Yeah, an infinite number of them. But those aren't the ones that happened, so... Yeah, I don't, I don't know, that's, that's a mystery. I guess that's where we have to go back to God is infinite and eternal and perfect, and we trust Him. When they sinned, that also helped Him show His grace there, too. Because he, that's when He made the first promise of the Messiah coming, was right after that. Mm -hmm. so he, of course, the Messiah didn't need to come until that. So, But if He's outside of time, this is the thing that always gets me. Like, if He's outside of time, He's not, like, waiting then at that point for Jesus to come. To Him, everything... Has already happened or is already happening happening at the same time like what is what is it to him he's not in this timeline that we are you know yeah. it's like an ant trying to figure out what you're doing with that device in your hand <laughs> I don't know. and and you know really bend your mind if Jesus entered into time and yet God the Father is outside of time is there a sense in which Jesus is God is always turning his face away from Jesus on the cross if he's seeing all of time at once I don't know I think these some of these things lend themselves to, to silliness because they're so far beyond our finite mind's ability to grasp. But I think all of these things make me feel small, which could either be bad or good. But when I feel small because God is infinitely huge, I think it's good. Before they ate the apple, were Adam and Eve perfect? Their, yeah, their will was in line with God's will. They were free. They had free will then to carry out lives that would honor him, and their, their wills were in line with God's, yeah. So God created perfect beings who became unperfect? Yeah. Uh -huh. when, the, when they were tempted by the enemy. So what? were we all knowing that? Mm, no. No, when you say perfect, I think we don't mean sharing in God's incommunicable perfections. We mean their, their wills were spotless. No, the, because the point was that the, the serpent was tempting them with being like God yeah. in ways that they weren't. So they were like God. I mean, yeah, so he says, you'll be like God knowing good from evil. You're going to have to, you won't have to rely on him anymore. Right. You will become well, the infinite and eternal. Yeah. Well, well, actually. Hold on. I think Sean's still sussing something out of here. So, eating the apple didn't, in, I mean, did God know good from evil? 
You mean before there was evil? Yeah. I mean... Did God know? Yeah, God is all-knowing. Well, did evil exist before they did this? It would have to because the devil existed. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of this stuff that we take for granted, you know, he, he's the chief of all the angels and he fell and when this happened and all of this, it's got a lot more rooted in uh, church tradition than in the scriptures themselves. Uh, we don't know that much about all this. God created evil. No. He created God did not create evil. Created we, we will get to a question of can God be charged with creating evil? And then the answer, no, and why not? And we'll struggle with that when we get there. But, but no, it is, uh, it is a, a damnable sin to accuse God of having created evil. So repent, uh, <laughs> and we'll get back to you after you've done that. Oh, it is time to close this blessing up. So let's say a prayer. Heavenly Father, we do... Thank you for how difficult it is to even start discussing your perfections and infinity. It, it, it's so amazing how great a God you are. And Lord, we thank you that you've made us with minds that want to try to understand and with, with minds that can understand much of your, your character. And Lord, where we fall short, we pray that we would, we would look to you and look to your word and trust that you are good and that you are perfect and unchanging and infinite and eternal. In your holy name we pray. Amen.